and also just this idea that your worth is determined by how many things you do which of course it's not but i think you know it can be very easy to kind of go down that path especially like as an athlete where you're so used to your worth as an athlete being defined by the number that you ran the time that you ran And welcome to the second episode of The Champion's Mindset. Today, we will dive into the world of college athletics and hear first-hand accounts of the challenges and the triumphs that come with being a student-athlete. Today, we have a very special guest joining us, Zasha Bohak. Zasha is a member of the track and field and cross-country team at the University of Houston. She's an international student from Poland. And she's here to share her story about her experience as an athlete. Zasha will be sharing some very personal experiences with us, including her struggles with mental health, body image, and some of the unique challenges that come with being a female athlete. But Zasha's story is not just about her struggles, it's also about the incredible resilience and the strength that she has developed over the years, and the lessons that she's learned that can benefit anyone. So, without further ado, let's dive into this conversation with Zasha Bohak. So, we are officially recording. So, today I have with me Zasha Bohak. She is my teammate in the UH cross country team. We have shared so many miles together, so many meets outdoor, indoor, cross country. And one of the main reasons why I invited Zosha today to the podcast is because aside from being like an amazing athlete, <laughs> she does so many other things. She's an international student. She's from Poland. But I will let her introduce herself and talk more about all of the things that she does. So, Zosha, <laughs> how are you doing today? I'm doing great. Very excited to be recording with you, Danny. Um, thanks for the invitation. <laughs> mm, thank you for showing up. No. So that we can get a nice introduction to mm -hmm. this podcast. Just... Tell us about yourself. Who is Zasha? Who, who are you? What do you yeah, do? That's the big question, right? Um, so, yeah, my name is Zasha. Um, I was born in Poland. I lived there until I was nine years old and then moved to Amsterdam, the Netherlands with my mom. Uh, so I guess, you know, a big part of who I am is just the countries I've lived in. And uh, the Netherlands, well, actually, I've played sports in some capacity all my life. Uh, so I started off as a skier, actually. My dad was very uh, bent on me becoming a good skier, so he put me on skis when I was two and a half. Um, and the lady... <laughs> the thing, wait, 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 did they even make skis for that size? That's the thing. See, the lady in the, like, ski rental place looked at him, and she was like, dude, do you want to kill your kid? Because, like, she can barely walk. <laughs> so, but yeah, the skis are very cute. They're, like, this big. Do you still have them? I don't. So I never actually owned skis because I uh, grew so quickly that, you know, we always rented them. But yes, I was a competitive skier for, like, the first, you know, five years of my life. And I also dabbled in, you know, a bunch of other sports. Did swimming. Um, wasn't very good at it, though. Um, I passed my swimming diploma without actually taking the test. So don't tell anybody about it. But then I also played a bunch of tennis. Uh, so that was kind of, you know, the other sport that my dad really wanted me to be good at. Uh, so I was in 10 hours of tennis, um, you know, between like from when I was five years old to when I was nine years old. 
again I stopped as soon as we moved to Amsterdam because I was so burnt out uh, and I haven't really played since um, and I'm a little sad about it and then I also did gymnastics again not very good at it you know we're distance runners not flexible <laughs> what else did I do I did some ballet you know same issue but yeah then when we moved to Amsterdam that's where I really kind of got into basketball soccer or football <laughs> as it's really yeah, called football yeah for yeah. everyone here who's American <laughs> football is soccer all over the world except here yeah and I really it makes no sense to me what like where the word soccer came from yeah but that's you know we'll leave it up there yeah and so that's when I got into kind of track and so so when you moved to Amsterdam you were doing soccer, basketball, and track at the same time? Yes. Yeah, so, well, I went to an international high school, and the way it worked for us is a bit like the NCAA, where we had seasons. So we had the fall, the winter, and the spring season for sports. And so you played, or you ran cross-country, or you did volleyball. I chose cross-country in the fall. Then you did uh, basketball or swimming in the winter. I chose basketball. And then you did track or football in the spring, and I did both. But it was a very different system to the U.S. system, where in Europe, high school sports really aren't a thing. It's much more focused on club sports. And so our high school, you know, for example, cross trainings were only um, like an hour, three times a week. So very, very relaxed, you know. So in no way was I like training to be a D1 runner, you know, like at 11 years old. I actually, you know, um, so I got into track because it's a funny story my English was pretty bad back then um, and I thought that our athletic director when she was talking about track and field was saying dragon field and I was like dragon field <laughs> that sounds sick I want to try that um, I want to be a dragon fielder that's right so I wrote myself into track um, but yeah track and cross weren't as popular as the other sports uh, but still I mean most of the people especially when we were young did a bunch of them and then it kind of you know as like we got uh, got to high school they started dropping out um and focusing on their academics a bit more just other things um so we had a league called nisas the northern european council of international schools and it sounds very fancy and big but it really wasn't um <laughs> there were i think maybe like 12 schools in it or maybe a bit more uh, but again you know sports like track weren't really competitive for example, my senior year for our track season, I, you know, swept the 800, 3K, 1500, um, and 400, I think. And I was, you know, one of the three girls in the 3K. So that just tells you, like, how hard it was to sweep it. <laughs> um, but, yeah. Kudos to you for sweeping everything. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> oh. I remember you telling me that in the cross-country meets in Europe, they had haystacks. When you're running, kind of like hurdles in the middle of like cross country. Tell us about that. Yeah, um, it's a funny story again. So, um, well, because our high school wasn't super competitive and because we only really had two or three trainings a week, I one of my high school coaches also coached the club. And so I started training with him, you know, every day, a little, uh, my last two years in high school. And I joined the club. And the club was a part of like the Dutch kind of league, so like kind of like you'd have nationals. And so I ran cross races for them. And as part of the circuit, we had this one race north of Amsterdam, where we lived. It was a 3K in cross, and it was basically a steeple, you know, cross country race, where they just decided to put up, you know, hay bales um, and kind of just like stacks of hay. And so I think we did what, like three laps of, you know, one kilometer each. And I think there were like four or five, you know, just kind of random stacks of hay that you had to hurdle. <laughs> no, 
which is hard when you're very uncoordinated. So I'm sure it was entertaining for the spectators. <laughs> uh, so just making it basically an exterior race. Exactly, exactly. Like yeah. grass, cross country, and haystacks. All of it. That was fun. And how was your training over there? Like how long did you train every week? What were your workouts mm -hmm. like? Yeah, so that's also, you know, kind of interesting because I didn't really specialize into running until I was um, in 11th grade. So I was a junior in high school. And that means that, you know, in the like midst of cross season or track season, I would never run more than like 15 miles. I don't think I even hit 10 miles most weeks. Like my training, you know, all the way through middle school and high school was very light. And I mean, I would sometimes go on runs like you know, during the winter, um, when we didn't, when we weren't in season, uh, but I mostly just played basketball um, and kind of did the other sports. And so when I joined the club team in uh, 11th grade, that's when I really kind of, you know, started doing more specific track work. And that's also when I started training through the summers, through the winter, and, you know, not just kind of like within the sports season, uh, but still like my mileage was super low. Um, my coach was also, he was a sprints coach and he was a swim coach. So he oh. kind of combined those two philosophies into distance running, which I mean, you know, I definitely wasn't overtrained, but we also, like we did no easy runs. Um, everything we, was hard all the time. Yeah, yeah. And like, for example, you know, even in terms of like our warm up, like our warm up was one, maybe sometimes two laps around the track. So we never, you know, did kind of like the two mile warm up and the two mile cool down. Like I just had zero easy mileage, like zero aerobic base when it came to running. We would do a lot of race-based stuff. So for example, like 400s at 3K pace with uh, a minute rest. And I would like keep going until I like failed that pace. And then I would take extra rest and keep going again until I failed that pace and then take extra rest. And as soon as I failed the one after the extra rest, that's like when you know I was done with the training. How long was that training? It honestly, most days wasn't very long. I mean. It was usually like around 10 to 12, 400s, you know, for that specific workout. Um, the paces were quite hard and I was also the only girl running it, which made it much more challenging <laughs> to like stick to it. So it was interesting. And then we, I had a sprint session every week, you know, I do seven by 150. That was our workout with like five minutes rest, all out. I did three weight sessions a week, uh, like two and a half hours in the gym, you know, like cleans, pulls, uh, snatches um squats kind of all of that stuff and like training like a proper power lifter not like a distance runner like i even had my power lifting shoes and my protein oh. shake and my shaker oh my god that's why you're so good at weights yeah for, for all of y'all who don't know this when we came to uh zosha lifts more than anyone else on the team and she she's lifting and you can tell she knows how to lift <laughs> thank you that's very kind of you <laughs> so that's probably why no yeah so you know, my training was very different to what we do now. Um, and all of my aerobic base came from biking because uh, living in the Netherlands, I would just bike to school and it was around 10 kilometers or six miles one way. So I would just get, you know, an hour to an hour and a half of biking every day. Um, and I think that kind of saved my aerobic fitness. Yeah, because um, you were training like a sprinter. So that's where you got your little bit of aerobic base. Yeah. Yeah. So you essentially, like in Amsterdam, in Netherlands, like I've seen those huge parking lots for bikes. Like yeah. there are more bikes than cars there probably. Yeah. Is that just like your main mode of transportation? Yeah, for sure. It's so handy. Oh, I miss it. That's why, you know, I didn't get my driver's license ever because 
and you, know, you just don't need it. it. Yeah, you really don't. And I mean, especially you know, Warsaw is very different. Warsaw in Poland, uh, you do actually need a car to move around there. You can still like the public transport is great, but most people drive. But in the Netherlands, it's Amsterdam, especially such an old city that the streets are super narrow. So parking is ridiculously expensive. Just gas is very very expensive. Um, and it just usually makes no sense to drive when you can take public transport and get there faster or bike and get there faster. So everything that's not using a car is essentially incentivized. You're incentivized to not use your car. You don't want to be yeah. driving there, you don't want to be parking. You know. Yeah, yeah, exactly. It's interesting. So it's just like very common. Everyone just gets to school in their bikes. Yeah. Yeah, and it's funny, I mean, now, you know, electric bikes are kind of a thing, so, like, you'll see all these, like, bougie Dutch kids biking to school on their, you know, uh, electric bike, the Van Moves. Oh, um, yeah, i Yeah, they're called, yeah. But, yeah, I mean, everybody bikes everywhere. Like, my mom, you know, who, like, worked in business, she biked to work. Um, so, it's just, yeah, it's very nice. So, you said you were in 11th grade, so you were a junior in, in high school. Mm-hmm. And when do you get this idea of, oh, I want to study college abroad. Oh, I want to move to the other side of the world. I want to go to America <laughs> and I want to run for a cross-country team. Was it like that? Or just tell us about the story of how you were cross-country runner in Amsterdam mm-hmm. and how you ended up being a cross-country runner at U of H. Yeah, again, it's kind of like a very random and funny story, but... Um, once I started really kind of, you know, committing to running and I wanted to give it everything I got and see how good I could get, I kind of, you know, started being interested in it from all aspects, you know, from like the training, but then also kind of like the research and reading more about running, reading more about nutrition, reading more about recovery. And so I listened to all these podcasts uh, and I really, I just fell in love with it. I sort of like this. the methodology behind running, the mm-hmm. science behind it. Yeah. And you, you start implementing all of that into your life. Yeah, um, I at least, you know, like to the extent that I knew how to do it uh, and to the extent that I could. But anyway, so all of that kind of was happening um, and I was just falling in love with running. And uh, one of the podcasts I listened to was on coaching by Magnus and Marcus. Uh, Magnus is Steve Magnus. That's right. Steve Magnus. The former coach of the UH distance team. And so kind of like that was all happening. And then at the same time, I had this amazing coach who was a PE teacher at my school. Mr. Guilty, shout out if, you know, for some reason he ever hears this. Uh, But he was an ultra runner, so very different. And he really kind of like showed me that side of running and, you know, kind of stirred that passion in me for just going out there and just being in nature and just running in nature and just seeing how far you can go with your body. For anyone who doesn't know this, go and stalk Zosha on Strava right now. She has so many beautiful pictures of her running in nature, in the middle of the woods, snowing, raining, sunshine, rainbows, whatever, in all types of weather. She has tons of pictures like that. Oh, thank you. (laughs) So, and I wasn't really, like, he wasn't really coaching me per se. He was kind of just like my, like, mentor and my inspiration. So, So, for example, like, you know, one of the tournaments we had my senior year of high school was in Norway. That was kind of like our big kind of like the equivalent of a conference meet and Norway is so beautiful they have all these fjords and so the day after my races were done he uh, took me and my friend trail running and so we did you know like 18 kilometers or like uh, 11 miles just like in the Norwegian fjords like running up kind of more like rock climbing up you know times and I was just like wow like this kind of running is amazing that sounds beautiful yeah uh and so basically you know the point is that i fell in love with running and at the same time i was just applying to all these different universities um because i didn't really want to go back to warsaw um i wanted to see more of the world 
and I didn't really want to stay in Amsterdam either just because I was kind of getting this antsy feeling you know like I want to see more and my best friend Anna um, her parents met at UH and so she was always going to go here and she was applying for all these scholarships um, academic scholarships and so yeah Anna and I both got you know this academic full ride scholarship um, uh, so I ended up staying at UH so to talk about that first year at U of H how was COVID how was the pandemic like for you and this is a funny story for everyone who's listening. I'm asking this because the way that Zasha and I actually met was on our first semester at U of H, we were both in our home countries. I was in Mexico. She was connecting all the way from uh, the Netherlands. She was in Europe. And I remember the class was at like 10 a.m. for us. And she had to connect at like, what, 6 p.m., something like that. It was always super late where she was. So we actually met online over Zoom. So how was the pandemic like for you? Yes. Um, yeah, so I kind of like jumped in, you know, the deep end because I had only been to Houston once uh, five years earlier. So I really didn't really, you know, know where I was going. And my mom or none of my parents could come, you know, and move in with me as in like help me move in because of COVID and kind of the travel restrictions. Um, yes, I just showed up here in January. And okay, a little, you know, back kind of story uh, in terms of how I got on the actual team. So I was accepted to UH on the academic scholarship. And then I basically emailed Coach Magnus or Steve, who also did the podcast. I emailed him about walking on until he replied to me. And so that's what I did. I just walked on the team, started training with them, uh, competing with them, and then worked my way up to, you know, some kind of like minor scholarships there as well. But yeah, that's that's kind of the distinction there. So then you were here in, in Houston, and once you were here, you contacted Steve Magnus, and then you joined the team. That's right. Essentially. Yeah, yeah. And I had contacted him even earlier, uh, kind of back in September, you know, before I physically got to Houston. So it was very funny because I met uh, the team on Zoom for the first time. And when I tell you, that was the most mortifying and awkward experience because I had never, you know, met these people before. And I was just joining Zoom calls with them. And I was like, are they gonna think I'm this weird person who just like shows up on Zoom, you know, every week? Yeah, and I mean, Steve was running kind of like a race series, like within the team, kind of like intra-squad racing. Uh, so they put me on a team and I was doing my time trials, you know, on my track in Amsterdam, but, um, I, I had never like, met. You were just sending it to Steve so he could compare the times and you were racing with them, but you were still in Amsterdam. Yep, it was a whole mess. Um, yeah, that was probably the most messy six months of my life. Kind of that stretch of like my first official semester in college, but it was fun. I want to talk a little bit more about that transition, mm -hmm. like first in, in the training aspect of it and then in the personal aspect of it. So aside from the high mileage, were there any important differences that you noticed from the way that you were training in Europe, with coach that you used to have mm -hmm. coming here, like either the training, the mindset mm -hmm. in regards to sport? How was yeah. that like? Yeah, it was definitely uh, very intense. I'm just going to start with kind of like the running aspect of it. Like I said, you know, uh, my coach in Europe was very low mileage, very uh, high intensity, whereas Steve was the opposite, very, you know, or higher mileage, uh, lower intensity, a lot of easy runs, etc. So that was a very big transition for sure. Um, I think just the culture of sport as well, like there was zero pressure on me, you know, except for the pressure I'd put on myself uh, back home. 
my mom, you know, she loved running because I loved it, but she, you know, like there was never any expectation on me to, you know, win a race or even PR in a race. Um, same with my dad, you know, they just were happy that I was doing something I loved. My coaches, you know, wanted me to do well because I was racing for the school, but again, like, you know, there was never any actual pressure tied to like, you know, running being like the thing you go to college for, nothing like that. So I think when I got here and kind of experienced- Wait, wait, I want to stop you right there. What's the path that a usual person mm -hmm. in the Netherlands or in Europe in general has to follow if they have really big goals in sports? Like they, their goal is to go to the Olympics. Like mm -hmm. is, there, is there any path that gets you there? And how yeah. is it different to the US? Yeah. Um, so collegiate sports aren't really a thing. There's like clubs that you can join, but it's very low level, um, kind of like club sports in the US. But the main thing that you would do is join an actual like club, like a track club. And there are some universities in Europe, for example, there's one in uh, Paris, and I can't think of the name right now, where it's like a developmental program for really, really good athletes. Uh, and so you can, you know, uh, be in school while also being like a full-time, basically professional athlete. Uh, but it's much more common for people to uh, keep training for their club as they're in university. And like those two things are very separate. Like your university has nothing to do with your career. Uh, it's much more like your club sport and your club coach that kind of helps propel you forward. And then you would immediately go and compete in regional and national races. So that's how you really kind of get scouted and join professional uh, groups is from your club. You compete in races that then get you to regionals, that then get you to nationals. Uh, and that's for track and cross country. So it's more of an individual decision, mm -hmm. whether if you have that goal, if you want to be a really good athlete, yeah. you start looking for the clubs on your own, you join yeah. a club, you join yeah. those races yourself. Yeah, yeah, for sure. And I mean, your coach will help you with that, but it's really something that you kind of have to like assert. Okay. Okay, yeah. so, so back to Houston, you realize that it's the first time that you're having pressure, external pressure on mm -hmm. yourself, like not just the intrinsic motivation that you had your whole life to just go out and run in the woods, run in nature, yeah. but you're having this external pressure on you. Yeah. So how was all of that like? Um, honestly, it was really fun. Uh, <laughs> I, was, I was loving it. I was, you know, this little freshman who for the first time in her life had a team of girls to run with and chase around the track. And, you know, I didn't have to do all these hard, grueling workouts by myself. And I mean, it was amazing when I think about it, you know, I was just thriving in that, like, at least like sports wise. My PRs, you know, like in the 3K and cross are still from that freshman season, which is very frustrating when you're, you know, training for all these years and trying to break them. But um, <laughs> no, it was great. And I think Steve was, you know, a phenomenal coach in the sense that he never put any pressure on us himself. Like he was always just happy with our accomplishments. But like, I never felt any pressure from him of like having to run a specific time. Yeah, so I think that was, you know, great. And I think where I probably struggled a lot more is just like the personal kind of aspect of, you know, being in a foreign city in a foreign country, uh, being completely cut off from my family because they couldn't come see me uh, and living in this, you know, freshman dorm that was just so like depressing. And, and also just like, you know, like having to meet new people and kind of do all of that stuff. Um, so running really was kind of like my safe space in that moment. Okay, so rather than that being just like that very tough pressure on you, it was something that you loved because you got to yeah. do something that you were already doing, but yeah. now with a group of girls and with a coach that you really 
uh, legs. So first of all, with Steve Magnus, the coach that you used to have, yeah. you're saying that there was not much of a pressure coming from him. I'm aware there are a lot of different coaching styles. Yeah. The opposite would probably be where your coaches scold you if you didn't run the times that you were supposed mm-hmm. to. So you said that you liked his way of coaching. How, like, th- then how did that work? Tell us a little bit more about his mm-hmm. coaching style. Yeah, I mean, so I also unfortunately didn't really fully experience it just because I got injured two months into, you know, uh, that season and then he ended up leaving UH. So I only really got two months of, you know, coaching with him. But from what I experienced there, we'd have, you know, like he would send us a plan for the week and the plan would have all the like workouts and all the times uh, that he wanted us to hit in those workouts. And so, you know, we all worked hard and everybody was, you know, prepared to run those times at the workout but it never felt like the times he gave us were unreasonable where we were so anxious about having to do them like in the workout so kind of scared of the pain or just scared that we you know weren't going to hit those times that we would not want to come to the workout in the morning so it's something challenging but doable yeah exactly and you know from the training that we did with steve like i never felt like i was struggling in the training like my body was absorbing the training not fighting it so that was that was really good. And then he was just like a really kind of, you know, um, like relaxed guy from, you know, uh, at least like what I like, how I met him, how I knew him. And so it was just fun. Like, you know, if you were having a bad day, you could just say like, Steve, like, I'm really having a bad day. Like, I'm feeling super tired. And he would be like, OK, you know, just do what you need to do today. So he left. Uh, he gave us a lot of freedom uh, as athletes. But at the same time, there was a really strong team culture where the whole girls team would always meet up for easy runs together. Uh, We'd always meet up for our long runs together. Um, Like we'd have these like small kind of team meetings every week. It was really a very tight knit friend group. And I feel like the coach, since he's the leader essentially of that team, plays a really big role in the team culture and the way that the athletes within that group perceive the training, the culture, even the other teammates who they are training with. For me, I really like coaches that give you a lot of freedom because at the end of the day, I feel like if you're a D1 athlete, you really want to do this. Like no yeah. one is forcing you to. You worked really hard to get here. And now that yeah. you're here, I feel like people want to get better. That's yeah. their motivation. If that's not your motivation, then what the hell are you doing there? Yeah. So I, I really like that approach that you're telling me yeah. of where he gives you that freedom if you're not feeling good, if you're feeling amazing. Yeah. And the fact that he was just so open to communication. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, yeah, so I really wish that I had not gotten injured and, you know, kind of seen more of how he how he did things. Yeah, you were just saying that you were thriving, your body was adapting to the workout, but then tell us about that injury. Yeah, so I got a stress fracture, which, you know, mm. classic runner issue. Um, got a distal fibula stress fracture. Um, so I was out for, I think, like seven or eight weeks, so almost basically the entire like second half this season. Um, so all of outdoor. Season. Yeah, all of outdoor. Um, yeah, I got it like a week or two weeks maybe after a cross conference. And that was also the weird season where we had indoor and cross at the same time because of COVID and then like outdoor, so it was just a mess. So just a little bit of background information. The way that running seasons work in the US, especially in NCAA and collegiate competitions, is that from the very first semester, fall, which goes from August to December, you have a cross-country season. Then from January until around like March, you have an indoor track season. And then from March till the end of the semester, like May, uh, maybe goes even to August, you have an outdoor track season. Yeah, exactly. 
which is fun because we're constantly in competition, but it's also a bit tiring. <laughs> yeah, the runners never get an off season. Yep. You could call that the summer, but summer is made to mileage, yeah. mileage, mileage for cross country. Yeah, summer is preseason basically. Yeah. <laughs> you get like the second half of May as your off season, and then you start up again. You know, working hard. You talked about athletics. You talked about running. How? was that transition to moving to the other side of the world, moving from Amsterdam to Houston on your personal life? You talked a little bit about like living in a small dorm, like it being tough. Tell us more about that. Yeah, it was really tough, honestly. So my mom, you know, her and I had lived in Amsterdam together for 11 years, all of through my middle and high school. But then she moved to Croatia um, right before I moved to the States. So it was weird because like my home kind of like moved as well as I was moving to like, you know, another continent. Um, so, so in a way you didn't have that home yeah. to return to. Exactly, uh, exactly. And like all of my friends were in Amsterdam, but you know, when I went home, I would either go to Poland or Croatia. So it was just like this weird kind of like constant in between. So that was a bit tough. But then in terms of actually like being in the States, I was so used to being independent in Amsterdam and being able to bike everywhere, or take public transport. Whereas here, you know, you really need a car. Uh, so it was also that kind of like, a, you know, adjustment of having to like ask people for rides if I wanted to go places and not really feeling like I had the independence. But I had some really good friends, you know, that I met on the team here. Uh, so, you know, having people here that I really liked and trusted definitely helped, you know, that transition. Uh, but my roommates, uh, my, my roommate, my freshman year was Anna, uh, my best friend for Amsterdam. So that was also, you know, such a big part of it. Uh, and I'm so grateful to Anna and honestly her entire family because they were, you know, able to come visit because they're American. Uh, and they really adopted me like, you know, one of their children. Uh, so Mr. Economist, whatever, you know, he would come, he would always basically treat me like I was Anna's sister and really like, I'm just so incredibly grateful for that and for them because I think without them it would have been a very different story. Yeah, so very grateful for that. Any cultural differences, cultural shock, friendship groups, people, how people relate to each other? Yeah, I think I had a bit of like an opportunity to ease into American culture because of the high school I was in. Uh, or like middle school and high school. It was an international high school, but the majority of the teachers and students were American. Um, so that's where you uh, learn to speak English, and that's kind of how I like learned a bit more about American culture before actually coming here. Uh, so that was you know more of a gentle kind of like easing into it. I mean, in terms of the actual culture, I think I fit in quite nicely here. You know, especially in the southern culture, because people are very uh, kind of like uh, nice and uh, bubbly. Uh, at least you know the majority of them. So that was quite nice. I think yeah, the biggest culture shock was uh, just like transportation and kind of that feeling of like being bound to the campus. Yeah, and I mean, in terms of like the relations people have, it is definitely very different. I don't know, I think sometimes in American culture it can be a bit harder to create like deeper relationships. It's very easy to create kind of like more superficial, which isn't necessarily, because I feel like superficial has a negative connotation. It's not necessarily bad that they're superficial. Like it's easy to make friends, but it's hard to make best friends because it's such a, I think you really need to know somebody very well to like, for them to let you into their life, like fully here, um, which I definitely got lucky with, you know, a lot of the girls on our distance team, because uh, they did do that. Whereas in Europe, it can be hard to make friends or harder, but once you, you know, like find your people, like 
nothing is kind of, like they're very close friends i hope that makes sense yeah, yeah no i get that because i think that's a very similar thing to what i experienced here yeah. people are really really nice here yeah and you have a lot of acquaintances exactly and people are really nice and ready to help you out yeah. but that's different from being that close friend yeah yeah like you know i have these two best friends from amsterdam helena and emma and whatever i call them like even if we haven't spoken to you know for like you know four months five minutes into the conversation i'm you know telling them my deepest insecurities <laughs> um and i think that also you know comes from like having known them for so many years but it's just a slightly different relationship that's, yeah that's pretty interesting yeah uh, I'd like to switch gears a little bit. So you had your first semester, lots of things happening, cultural shock, getting used to everything here, great coach, great training, you get a stress fracture. But then I also know that you're like super involved in tons of stuff on campus and even on ca- on campus, outside of campus, you I know you're doing an internship for Voice in Sport. Tell us about like how you started getting involved in all of those things and explain to us what all of those things are. Yeah, so I'm a dual major, I'm majoring in economics and English literature, and I'm minoring in energy and sustainability, uh, which is a bit all over the place, but also really fun. Uh, econ is kind of like my wise choice, and English is what I'm really passionate about, and I just I love reading books, reading literature, and talking about it. Uh, and then energy and sustainability is just again something I'm really interested in, especially you know as it relates to climate change and kind of all of that kind of stuff. And then yeah, so I started working with Voice in Sport in at the very start of my freshman year. What is Voice in Sport? Mm-hmm. So a Voice in Sport or Viz is a digital media company that their main goal is to elevate women and girls in sports, and they provide free mentorship for girls, young girls in sports specifically from professional female athletes and uh, experts in sports nutrition and sports psychology. Uh, so it's a great company with you know a vision that I wholeheartedly support and believe in. And yeah, I found them actually through an Instagram ad that was advertising the internship. So very random again, but turned out great. So I've been with them for over three years. And you know, I was on their podcast teams uh, and their journalism teams. Uh, had so a this short is not stuff. the first time you're doing this type of stuff. No, but it's funny. I was laughing with Daniela before uh, because I'm always on the other side of the podcast. So I'm always the person, you know, editing and making the whole run of show and writing up the intro and outro of the <laughs> podcast and I'm publishing it. I've never actually been, you know, interviewed, uh, which is funny. So if I ramble a lot, that's why. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah. And so, you know, I worked my way up to being the head of the podcast team for Voice and Sport and uh, their head of podcast marketing and brand partnerships towards kind of the end of my internship. But yeah, I was with the company for three years. So uh, my entire freshman, uh, I guess a little bit before my freshman year, freshman, uh, sophomore and uh, junior year of college. Um, and yeah, it's just a great company. Um, and then, you know, kind of in addition to that, um, I somehow ended up doing a lot of research for the university as well. Uh, so the first kind of research project that I started with was the SURF, the Summer Undergraduate Research Fellowship, where I looked at the marketability impacts of women's underrepresentation in sports media. Which is tied to sort of what you were doing with Voice in Sport. Very much so. So uh, I actually collaborated with Voice in Sport with that, where they helped me send out my survey um, and they connected me with this really cool company called the Sports Innovation Lab uh, that was using actual like big data from, you know, uh, media consumption and fans of sports uh, looking at how the consumption patterns are different, uh, you know, between fans of women's sports and fans of men's sports. So I collaborated with them and yeah, Voice in Sport was really instrumental kind of, you know, 
in that project as well. What was the result of that research? Like, how is appreciation for sports for women different mm-hmm. from men? What did you take out of that yeah. research? Yeah, no, it was a really fun project. So uh, just a bit of background. Basically, what I did in the research is um, I sent out a survey to look at kind of perceptions. But then I also uh, collected data from social media. So I looked at the difference in likes on Instagram posts on the Nike channel. Um, so the, especially the Nike running basketball I think soccer and like the Nike general channels. And I was looking at the difference in likes between posts showcasing women athletes and posts showcasing men athletes. And that was a really interesting way of looking at it because a post uh, on Instagram will have the same reach or uh, if it comes from the same channel. So that really showed you how people interact with content that showcases women uh, athletes and male athletes. And it was really interesting because you could see, you know, uh, those likes growing throughout kind of like the time because my analysis was 150 posts so for um, some channels that was up to three years for some channels it was you know uh, two years and throughout kind of that time period you could really see like the posts with women athletes catching up to the posts with male athletes and they were growing at a much faster rate so their the engagement with those posts was growing much more rapidly and that was really exciting to see because it shows that you know women's sports have this immense potential why do you think it rose so much? Yeah, I think a part of it is that those companies and uh, or I guess those Instagram channels were doing a much better job of actually posting women athletes. And I think it's also, you know, uh, women athletes starting to stand up for themselves through companies like Voice and Sport and uh, kind of put their stories out there and also make it more, you know, uh, normal in our society that women play sports. And that women are a part of the sports world, especially within sports like soccer or football, you know, that are traditionally super male dominated. And if you know the engagement for posts with women is super low, then obviously, like, you know, that reduces their value as like a marketing um, object in the eyes of companies. So how can we use more, you know, how can we increase their visibility and like fans engagement with them to make them more marketable, which then will hopefully you know, reduce the pay gap in their contracts and the pay gap in their, you know, sponsorship deals, etc. So, so it's essentially like a positive feedback. Yeah. If you give them more visibility, then people will see them more. And like other companies and even like sponsors will want to offer sponsorships yeah. to women just because they're more visible, people are watching them more. Exactly. But like someone has to take that first step. Exactly. And start like posting them more. Yeah. Yeah. And then just in general, you know, investing in women's sports so that they have primetime television as well. They have primetime, you know, coverage, etc. Uh, and they're not just kind of like pink it and shrink it version of men's sports. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I mean, you know, it's 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 just fascinating um, how much we can do for women's sports and how much is being done. Yeah. Speaking of that, I actually want to get into your how your mental health has been here and how it is relating to all the activities that you do, how it is relating to to running, Mm -hmm. how do you deal with that? You talked a little bit about it, but I want to dive a little bit deeper into your story with mental health. Yeah, I think, you know, you kind of hit the nail on the head when you were talking about high achieving, you know, student athletes Mm -hmm. and how we just feel the pressure to, like, perform in all aspects of life. And I mean, that's something that I've definitely... Uh, struggled with a lot just kind of that idea of you know like if I see an opportunity I have to go for it kind of that pressure of like I don't want to miss out on anything that like I could get from life and I think that's also why you know like I did all that research and I worked for voice and sport is just because I saw these really exciting opportunities that I was 
yeah, I really wanted to do. And I also didn't know how to kind of prioritize and say no. And also just this idea that, you know, like your worth is determined by how many things you do, which of course it's not. But I think, you know, it can be very easy to kind of go down that path, especially like as an athlete where you're so used to your worth as an athlete being defined by the number that you ran, the time that you ran. So I think, you know, that's kind of like been something that I've definitely struggled with very much. And like, you know, I started seeing a, a psychologist or a therapist um, last year and, you know, she's been kind of instrumental in helping me realize that like, it's okay to like let go of some things. And she also, <laughs> this is something that she just like said in one session, I was like, damn, like that's so true. She told me that you don't have to work hard for everything in life. Some things you just get to enjoy and, you know, some things you just get to take and you don't have to earn it. And I was like, wow, that's the first, you know, that's the first time that I thought of it in that way, because up until that point, everything was like, like, I've got to earn, you know, this YouTube video that I'm going to watch. I have to earn, you know, uh, this coffee by like doing work while I'm at the cafe, stuff like that. And so, yeah, just kind of talking with her and like talking through how I approach work and schoolwork has just like helped me chill out so much. And it's funny, you know, because with running, I really love running. And so running is kind of like my mental escape from uh, like the stress of school. Also, I think because I'm not an incredibly talented runner, like I'm talented, but I think most of you know me being good at running just comes from the fact that I train a lot because I really like it. But I like don't really have any pressure on myself to like make NCAAs, you know. I just want to like keep running kind of forever and doing different things and like, you know, maybe be an ultra runner one day. But because of that, running isn't like a part of the pressure for me. It's a relief from the pressure. Um, I want to make yeah. a, a small comment about that because I, I feel like that's a, an important type of athlete because there are different goals that you can have as an athlete. Mm -hmm. If you're like a super high performing athlete, crazy talented, and you have the really big goal of going to the Olympics as an yeah. example versus an athlete that really, really enjoys what they do yeah. and they find the intrinsic motivation, the fact that they get to do that every single day, yeah. which is one of the things that I really admire about you, yeah. that you find like so much happiness in just the act of showing up, doing that workout, doing that track workout and doing mm -hmm. it alongside friends. <laughs> like that, that is a whole thing in itself and you run just because you like running yeah. if you get great results then oh my god that's amazing it's a, yeah. a happiness that i would wish on <laughs> anyone because when you pr when you're yeah. racing when you yeah. have really good results during a track workout but at the end of the day because of the reasons why you do this which is something i want to highlight yeah you do this because you love this yeah 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 for sure and i think that's why you know the culture of sports in uh, U.S., like, you know, collegiate sports specifically can be so challenging is because it can really strip away, like, the love that people have for the sport. Uh, and I think that was also, like, the other thing that working with, you know, like, a therapist has helped me kind of figure out for myself is, like, you know, just remembering that I run because I love it. And remembering that even, you know, like, when it's kind of going downhill, like, I'm still just finding joy in that daily process. But I think the other kind of interesting thing and as it relates to mental health especially is that, you know, if running is, which for me it was, but like if running is your main kind of way to relieve stress, that also becomes kind of like a spiral because, you know, that's how you get injured by overtraining is because the higher like your stress level, like psychologically, your body physically will also like feel that stress. And so then if you try to deal with it by putting on more physical stress, that's a pretty bad recipe. 
So that's something I'm working on right now and I'm still struggling a lot is like how do I find other ways of you know dealing with stress that don't involve putting my body through more stress as I'm trying to like get it to recover from the stress I've already put it in. <laughs> yeah I mean I guess that's one way of I have to say it's a much healthier way than mm. a lot of people deal with stress. Yeah for sure. So just going out running de-stressing but probably when you're a runner who just did a really hard workout in the morning it might yeah. not be the best thing. Yeah, for sure. And at the end of the day, it is a type of addiction, which yeah. I think, you know, like you said... The runner's like, high. Is, no, it really, really is. Yeah, yeah. Oh. Uh, so another topic that I do want to talk about, you were mentioning about representation for women mm-hmm. in sports, mental health, and being a distance runner. Mm-hmm. I want to talk about, do you feel any pressure to look a certain way mm-hmm. with the body image of how distance runner is portrayed in the media, how you should be looking like? Have you struggled? Have, are you working with this type of thing? And of course, feel free to share whatever you feel comfortable sharing. Yeah, for sure. I think that's like the single biggest mental health struggle I've ever had. Um, it's just kind of like accept my body for what it is and for what it does and not for like what it looks like. And, you know, I struggled with this a lot in high school. Um, I never had, like, an eating disorder, but I was, uh, I can't remember what, like, the name for it is, but I was basically obsessed with healthy food. And so, like, I didn't eat any sugar, um, you know, I barely ate any carbs, uh, that kind of stuff. I lost, like, a lot of weight. Um, I lost my period for, um, like, four years. So I got my period when I was, I think, 12 or 13 and then um, I lost it when I was 14 and I didn't get it back until I was like 18. And you know, I think it's challenging because I had a lot of uh, Achilles problems in high school and I like kind of bone injuries, well, never really full bone injuries, but kind of like bone bruises. So I, like my running was definitely suffering from, you know, like this obsession with healthy food. But at the same time, like that's the only way I knew of fueling as an athlete uh, was to limit my like food intake. And it's also much easier to do that when, you know, like you bike to school in the morning, you're at school for like eight hours, then you're at training for another three hours and you bike back home and it's like 8 p.m. And, you know, only then do you like eat dinner. Um, you need the fuel to yeah, get through that day. For sure. Um, and I wish like I just wish I could like hug my high school self and be like, hey, like it's OK, like just eat and you will be so much better off. But yeah, I mean, I think it's so challenging and especially, you know, like I'm like I'm not like a obese individual at all like you know we're distance runners who run like 60 miles a week like there's no way you're gonna be obese but I think it's so easy to kind of like fixate on the little like elements of your body that you don't like and you know because I did so much weightlifting and sprinting like my quads are pretty muscular uh and like my like I'm just like a more like muscular distance runner which isn't very common and sometimes when I'm on the start line uh, start line of a race I'm like damn I feel pretty uncomfy right now just because I'm like much bigger than all these other girls. So yeah, I don't know. I think it's hard, especially when your body maybe like doesn't adapt to running in the same way that it would for other people. Like there's people who, you know, like lose weight uh, and like lose some muscle as they run more because that's how their body like gets fitter and faster. And there's some people like me who like build up more skeletal muscle because that's how their body gets stronger as you run more. So I think, you know, stuff like what Voice and Sport is doing with, you know, just teaching young girls that it's okay for your body to look a different way. And it's also like okay for you to, you know, be maybe a bigger runner. And that doesn't necessarily mean that you're going to be slower than somebody who's maybe like a, you know, a thinner runner. 
So I think just kind of like, I wish that I could take away the pressure all you know girls or many girls feel to like look a certain way because it's been so draining mentally to have to you know like to look at yourself in the mirror when you're dressing and be like, oh man, I should probably like lose some weight even though like you shouldn't be losing any more weight because you know that's gonna like tip you over the edge of being unhealthy and like you know getting injuries. Um, you need to be fueling. Fueling yeah. is super, super important yeah. for for distance yeah. running, for doing sports, for life. If you're succumbing your body to like such intense efforts, your body needs that fuel, and yeah. your body's gonna be thankful for it. For sure, and it's also <laughs> fun. Like food is so much fun. <laughs> you know, cooking and eating, and yeah, like it's just delicious. So it's just so sad that you know, like we feel this pressure to like limit something that can bring so much joy. Yeah. Are you doing anything right now to be able to fight those thoughts a little bit, or being more comfortable with mm. you yourself uh, fueling? Is there mm. anything that you're doing right now to fight those th- yeah. that type of mindset? Yeah, um, I think like the main thing is the people you surround yourself with, you know, uh, and that doesn't have to be like the people physically in your life. But for example, I have this one podcast that I love. Um, it's called Some Work All Train or all play, sorry, some work, all play. Mm-hmm. Um, and they're, uh, it's a pair of uh, trail running coaches and they're incredible about emphasizing fueling and just their like mantra is eat enough always. And I think, you know, like whenever I feel like I'm kind of, you know, tipping back into those behaviors again and trying to maybe like restrict a bit more, I, you know, listen to like their podcast uh, and it's been incredibly helpful. Um, What's the name of the podcast again? Uh, some work, all play. But I mean, the other thing is, I think like sharing, you know, that you have those thoughts with somebody, which can be really uncomfortable. But sometimes what, when you hear yourself talking about it, it like puts into perspective how irrational some of our thoughts may be. Um, and then also just like remembering, again, why you, why you run. And I think for me, a lot of it... Because a lot of people, you know, uh, have like kind of like those eating, you know, disorder related thoughts because of like their running performance. Whereas for me, what I struggle with is really like body image, like how I physically look um, and how I think people will perceive me because of how I look. And so kind of reminding myself that at the end of the day, like a people really couldn't care less about whether I weigh, you know, 68 kilos or 67 kilos. Like, you know, when you look at me as your teammate, like you're not saying, oh, like, she must have put on weight because she has this extra like tiny bit of fat that I can't even see on her stomach. That is the last thing anybody, you know, thinks of when they look at you. Um, so just remembering that people could not care less if, you know, like I weighed this amount or this amount. And then also remembering that at the end of the day, it is so much more important to me as like a person and an athlete to like be able to keep running because I don't have any injuries than to look a certain way. Um, like I would so much rather be healthy and actually happy than, you know, constantly thinking and obsessing about what I ate or yeah so and I think the longer you like deal with it and the more you kind of talk to yourself as you're having these thoughts the better you get at you know fighting them as well well I am really glad that you are aware of this and that you are doing your best to be more open about it communicate with your teammates uh know that it's okay to not look a certain way not not fitting a a specific stereotype because people are different there are so many different types of bodies that are just as able to perform yeah 
in yeah. so many different sports. Yeah. yeah, remembering that you have people around you who love you no matter what. And again, they could not care less about, you know, how much you weigh or what your body looks like because they love you for you. So I just, I wish that I could tell my younger self as well. Like, I wish I could just give her a hug and just be like, hey, it's okay. You can let go of this and you'll actually thrive. Like, just, you know, also tell them that food, like you were saying, is fuel and you actually, like, you just need it. So, you know, the again, like another thing that those coaches say on that podcast is the more fuel you put in your fire, the hotter it'll burn. So the more you fuel yourself, whether that's for food or also just like, you know, doing things with your friends and relaxing and resting, the more you'll be able to do in your life because you'll be a happier and just stronger and more energetic, you know, individual. And that'll translate to your athletics, your academics, your personal life, and just at the end of the day to the person you are and how you interact with others. I'm, I'm sure there must be someone who's out there listening who might be going through something similar. I yeah. know a crazy amount. Yeah. The percentage of the amount of women who struggle with body image yeah. issues like everywhere and especially like in the NCAA. Yeah. So it's definitely an issue that needs to be talked about. Yeah. So I am very happy and I really appreciate you opening up about this. <laughs> of course. Because I'm sure like you're not the only one. That it's okay to feel yourself. It's okay to eat that ice cream, to go get that coffee. Yeah, exactly. And, and, and like you said, you don't have to earn it. Yeah. Exactly. I think that's what it comes down to is like, you can just enjoy things, you know, there is anybody out there who like, just want somebody to talk to about, you know, all these things like, you know, you guys can feel free to DM me on Instagram or reach out to me in any way. And really, I'm more than happy to just talk to you about it or like hear your story. And you know, yeah, if you literally just need somebody to listen. Um, yeah. Yeah. Speaking of that, Zosha, uh, would you like to share your social media, your Instagram, your Instagram, Facebook, whatever you want to share. Alrighty. Um, so for my Instagram, that's what I'm most active on is Zasha. So Z-O-S-I-A underscore Bullhawk, B-U-L-H-A-K. Um, so you, if you also look up UH Track and Field on Instagram, you can find me like tagged in their photos. That might be easier. And I, I mean, you can follow me on Strava, but it's really not that exciting. So, you know, up to you. It is. Um, she posts really cool, cool nature <laughs> pictures. That's true. It just makes you jealous and you just want to be running in like the woods in Europe. Oh, gosh. <laughs> um, yeah. So if you want that nature photo content, uh, my Strava is also just Zasha Bullhuck, um, just like my Instagram. Uh, and then, you know, the last thing, you know, as a resource, I would, you know, encourage everybody to follow, even if you're not a woman in sport, is voice in sport. Uh, just because they have so much amazing content, you know, free um, and then paid if you want to join the community. Um, and it's really, I think, such an essential resource in terms of fueling and also just like the psychology aspect. Well, I really want to thank you for your time, <laughs> for saying yes to my request for you to join this podcast. And I was really happy to have you as a guest today. Very thank interesting, you. getting a little bit more of a view of who the person is behind the runner that I mm -hmm. see every single day, the yeah. teammate that I interact <laughs> with, the, the classmate that I have. Yeah. So thank you. I really appreciate you sharing that with of me course. and sharing that with the people listening. Today. Yeah, of course. Thank you so much for doing this. Um, yeah, I really, really enjoyed it. And sorry if I rambled. Um, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, thanks, guys.